0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. We are continuing our story of Willa Cather today on the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. How are you? I'm Jack Wilson. I am fine. Let's go straight at him. On Monday, we talked to Lauren Marino of the, about her new book, Bookish Broads, about the women who wrote themselves into history. And we spent some time on McClure's magazine, the muckraking McClure's, which took on big oil at the start of the 20th century with heroic journalists like Ida Tarbell and and which led to developments like the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States and the rise of third-party, trust-busting candidate Teddy Roosevelt. After that brief peek for McClure's, the writers rebelled and went off to start another magazine, and Sam McClure looked around and found Willa Cather, who could edit. She was a perfectionist, Lauren told us. And she eventually devoted her career to fiction with the underrated skill of being a good editor of her own work. We're going to hear some of that work today. We'll hear some passages from my Antonia to give you a taste of what it's like. Where was she in life when she wrote it? Let's see, she was in her mid 40s at that point, but let's back up. She was born in 1873 and moved to Nebraska when she was nine. She graduated from high school in 1890 and started college at the University of Nebraska, where she was already succeeding as a writer. Early on, she signed her name William, but she dropped that for her real name, Willa, and she could write at a professional level. And remember, these were the years, the 1890s, the aughts, the 1910s, when print was king, before audio and visual took over. There were a million outlets that were hungry for news and columns and stories. In her first year at college, she wrote an essay on Thomas Carlyle, and the Nebraska State Journal got a hold of it and published it without her knowledge. The incident had an effect on her, and she started publishing more things. In printed publications, being paid a dollar for a column at one point, and she said, the feeling of seeing the words on the page produced a kind of hypnotic effect. All you young people out there, if you find yourself doing something and seeing the results and being paid for what you do, and it feels like a kind of hypnotic effect, you might have found your calling. That's a very good sign that you are in the groove and doing exactly what you should be doing. So, Willa Cather left school with a degree in English and moved to Pittsburgh where she wrote for a women's magazine. And then she became an editor and a critic for one publication while contributing fiction and poetry to another while also teaching English and Latin and algebra at a couple of local high schools. And then she was discovered by McClure's and offered a job in New York City as an editor. She was 33. She succeeded at McClure's and eventually rose to power, even as McClure's was going through some rocky times, having lost several of its writers who could not handle the wild owner at the helm, the wild captain. (laughs) And then she started writing fiction in earnest. Sarah Orne Jewett, as we heard last time, Sarah Orne Jewett, who herself is famous for writing stories about Maine, her hometown, her home state, I guess, advised Cather to turn to Nebraska. She said, mind your own country. Tell us what it's like there and who lives there. Right about home, Cather thought about the immigrants and the hard times and said, yes, I can do that. I see the seeds of fiction there. That's a stone in my shoe. She didn't like women's writing, or most women's writer, women, <laughs> most women writers. She thought they were too sentimental. But she liked George Eliot and the Brontes and Jane Austen, the usual suspects, and she also liked Catherine Mansfield, and she liked Sarah orange Jewett. We have to have an episode about Sarah orange Jewett too. She's another wonderful writer, but people, come on. Please be patient. I could do 10 writers a week and still not get to your favorite for the next 10 years. It's just how it goes. There are a lot of writers out Henry James is a great example of a giant on our list whom we haven't covered. So if you're telling me about some favorite of yours and complaining that he or she has been left out and you're wondering why, well, that's why. It's not a snub. It's mathematics. Speaking of Henry James, he was sort of dominant in this era that Willa Cather is coming of age, and Cather admired him greatly. So, she looked, she liked his style, she liked his subject matter. So, she looks at Nebraska, then, and writes what comes to be known as the Prairie Trilogy, which is O Pioneers, which was came out in 1913, The Song of the Lark in 1915, and today's work, My Antonia, 1918. She was 45 at this point. She kept going after that. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 1923 for her World War I novel, One of Ours. And what else? Death Comes for the, uh, for the Archbishop. Boy, I'm <laughs> I am having a very difficult time talking today. Mm. Death Comes for the Archbishop was a bestseller and is still pretty famous. That came out when she was in her mid-50s, and she wrote more novels that we're not going to list for you, and in her late 60s, she published Sapphira and the Slave Girl, which is such a fascinating book, mainly because, fascinating to me, mainly because it has such a strong history, including a famous essay by Toni Morrison about that book, about fiction, and what it means to be a fiction writer. I think we will need to devote an entire episode just to that exchange. the Exchange across time. The novel Sapphira and the Slave Girl and the essay by Toni Morrison. Okay. Willa Cather was probably a lesbian. There's some dispute about it, but most people, I think, accept that her relationship with Edith Lewis, with whom she lived for 39 years, was a love affair. They were discreet, It's not proven, but at some point, the circumstantial evidence makes it a little ridiculous to maintain the opposite with vehemence. Although, we also want to respect Cather's privacy in some sense, too. And since we care about the literature more than anything else, I think, at least here, the History of Literature podcast, I'd add that we're offered some puzzle pieces about her relationships and identity when it comes to her writing, too. Her letters suggests that her strongest emotional relationships were with women. And Sarah Orne Jewett said, Hey, you should use female narrators, narrators and write about romantic attraction between women. Why not do it? And Cather says, Well, I'm going to use a male narrator in my Antonia. But that could be for a good reason. Maybe it was her way of freeing herself to write more romantically then she would have, although there's not a lot of romance in the book between the narrator and my Antonia, but you get what I mean. Maybe using a male narrator was her way of freeing herself to write in a way that she would have avoided otherwise. I'm not here to judge the reasons behind the decisions, although I find them interesting to think about. I like putting myself in the shoes of a writer if I can. I'm not going to judge them. I'm just going to accept the result and do what I can to analyze that, the work itself. So some of the younger generation didn't appreciate Willa Cather. The ones who came along after her, they accused her of nostalgia and of having uh, conservative politics. Edmund Wilson was a critic of Cather, didn't fully appreciate her. Hemingway said she didn't know anything about war, and said that the war scenes in one of ours came straight out of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. H.L. Mencken, who was a little closer to her politically, was a more sympathetic reader. He started by saying, This is just Edith Wharton light. But when Cather switched from New England to Nebraska, he changed his mind. He said, Good idea to drop New England. You were trying to turn New England into the Middle West. You, you were trying to make New England, Nebraska. The sensibility was all wrong. Which is fascinating to think about. A very astute comment, I think. Mencken was pretty sharp. <laughs> as cranky as he was. He read My Antonia, Mencken did, and said, Here was a novel planned with the utmost skill and executed in truly admirable fashion. Here, unless I err gravely, was the best piece of fiction ever done by a woman in America. End quote. We don't have to decide that. And anyway, it was 100 years ago. So, of course, we don't have to pretend like, like that's still true. There have been a lot of great works since then. And there were some pretty great works before My Antonia as well. But let's give our Baltimore crank his due. My Antonia is pretty good and worth spending some time on, no matter who it was by. Give you some. Give you a flavor of Willa Cather. So let's start with the beginning. I want you to listen to the narration. This is remember when this was written, the 19 teens. This is not Gertrude Stein and James Joyce, two writers she respected. This is the journalist Willa Cather, the editor, the the nonfiction expert turning to fiction. The Journalist who invents scenes and dialogue and pushes journalism in the journalistic style into the realm of fiction where emotional effect has more room to rise to greater heights and sink to lower depths. There's art here, too. It might be less obvious and less showy, one might say, than an experimentalist like Stein or Joyce, some of these high modernists. But there are prose styles of all kinds even within the artistic world, just like there are paintings of all kinds that hang in the museum. You go from room to room to room to see the differences. So let's hear this prose style and this introduction, hear what Willa Cather sounds like and what this is all about. This is a story within a story, which is going to take us into the world of another book we might know a little better. So let's do this. We'll take a break. We'll listen to the introduction to My Antonia, and then we'll take another break and talk about the way the story works and how the prose works. I'll let you try to guess what book I'm talking about and what author. What comes to mind when we hear this? And then we will hear what he or she had to say about Willa Cather and the exchange that they had. So all that is coming up after this. I happened to be crossing the plains of Iowa in a season of intense heat, and it was my good fortune to have for a traveling companion, James Quail Burden, Jim Burden, as we still call him in the West. He and I are old friends. We grew up together in the same Nebraska town, and we had much to say to each other. While the train flashed through never-ending miles of ripe wheat By country towns and bright-flowered pastures and oak groves wilting in the sun, we sat in the observation car, where the woodwork was hot to the touch and red dust lay deep over everything. The dust and heat, the burning wind, reminded us of many things. We were talking about what it is like to spend one's childhood in little towns like these, buried in wheat and corn, under stimulating extremes of climate. Burning summers when the world lies green and billowy beneath a brilliant sky, when one is fairly stifled in vegetation, in the color and smell of strong weeds and heavy harvests, blustery winters with little snow, when the whole country is stripped bare and gray as sheet iron. We agreed that no one who had not grown up in a little prairie town could know anything about it. It was a kind of Freemasonry, we said. Although Jim Burton and I both live in New York and are old friends, I do not see much of him there. He is legal counsel for one of the great western railways and is sometimes away from his New York office for weeks together. That is one reason why we do not often meet. Another is that I do not like his wife. When Jim was still an obscure young lawyer struggling to make his way in New York, his career was suddenly advanced by a brilliant marriage. Genevieve Whitney was the only daughter of a distinguished man. Her marriage with Young Burden was the subject of sharp comment at the time. It was said she had been brutally jilted by her cousin, Rutland Whitney, and that she married this unknown man from the West out of bravado. She was a restless, headstrong girl, even then, who liked to astonish her friends. Later, when I knew her, she was always doing something unexpected— She gave one of her townhouses for a suffrage headquarters, produced one of her own plays at the Princess Theatre, was arrested for picketing during a garment-maker's strike, etc. I am never able to believe that she has much feeling for the causes to which she lends her name and her fleeting interest. She is handsome, energetic, executive, but to me she seems unimpressionable and temperamentally incapable of enthusiasm. Her husband's quiet tastes irritate her, I think, and she finds it worthwhile to play the patroness to a group of young poets and painters of advanced ideas and mediocre ability. She has her own fortune and lives her own life. For some reason, she wishes to remain Mrs. James Burden. As for Jim, no disappointments have been severe enough to chill his naturally romantic and ardent disposition. This disposition— though it often made him seem very funny when he was a boy, has been one of the strongest elements in his success. He loves with a personal passion the great country through which his railway runs and branches. His faith in it and his knowledge of it have played an important part in its development. He is always able to raise capital for new enterprises in Wyoming or Montana and has helped young men out there to do remarkable things in mines and timber and oil. If a young man with an idea can once get Jim Burden's attention, can manage to accompany him when he goes off into the wilds hunting for lost parks or exploring new canyons, then the money which means action is usually forthcoming. Jim is still able to lose himself in those big western dreams. Though he is over 40 now, he meets new people and new enterprises with the impulsiveness by which his boyhood friends remember him. He never seems to me to grow older. His fresh color and sandy hair and quick-changing blue eyes are those of a young man, and his sympathetic, solicitous interest in women is as youthful as it is Western and American. During that burning day, when we were crossing Iowa, our talk kept returning to a central figure, a bohemian girl whom we had known long ago and whom both of us admired. More than any other person we remembered, this girl seemed to mean to us the country, the conditions, the whole adventure of our childhood. To speak her name was to call up pictures of people and places, to set a quiet drama going in one's brain. I had lost sight of her altogether, but Jim had found her again after long years, had renewed a friendship that meant a great deal to him, and out of his busy life had set apart time enough to enjoy that friendship. His mind was full of her that day. He made me see her again, feel her presence, revived all my old affection for her. I can't see, he said impetuously, why you have never written anything about Antonia. I told him I had always felt that other people. He himself, for one, knew her much better than I. I was ready, however, to make an agreement with him. I would set down on paper all that I remembered of Antonia if he would do the same. We might, in this way, get a picture of her. He rumpled his hair with a quick, excited gesture, which with him often announces a new determination, and I could see that my suggestion took hold of him. Maybe I will, maybe I will, he declared. He stared out of the window for a few moments, and when he turned to me again his eyes had the sudden clearness that comes from something the mind itself sees. Of course, he said, I should have to do it in a direct way and say a great deal about myself. It's through myself that I knew and felt her, and I've had no practice in any other form of presentation. I told him that How he knew her and felt her was exactly what I most wanted to know about Antonia. He had had opportunities that I, as a little girl who watched her come and go, had not. Months afterward, Jim Burden arrived at my apartment one stormy winter afternoon with a bulging legal portfolio sheltered under his fur overcoat. He brought it into the sitting room with him and tapped it with some pride as he stood warming his hands. I finished it last night, the thing about Antonia, he said. Now, what about yours? I had to confess that mine had not gone beyond a few straggling notes. Notes? I didn't make any. He drank his tea all at once and put down the cup. I didn't arrange or rearrange. I simply wrote down what of herself and myself and other people Antonia's name recalls to me. I suppose it hasn't any form. It hasn't any title either. He went into the next room, sat down at my desk, and wrote on the pinkish face of the portfolio the word Antonia. He frowned at this a moment, then prefixed another word, making it my Antonia. That seemed to satisfy him. Read it as soon as you can, he said, rising, but don't let it influence your own story. My own story was never written, but the following narrative is Jim's manuscript, substantially as he brought it to me. So in hearing that, did you pick up on the book that I was thinking about, a book that was written a few years later and which has also become an American classic? I'll give you another chance. Here's a quick paragraph from book one. This is Jim Burden's voice now, the narrator, Jim Burden. I first heard of Antonia on what seemed to me an interminable journey across the great Midland Plain of North America. I was 10 years old then. I had lost both my father and mother within a year, and my Virginia relatives were sending me out to my grandparents, who lived in Nebraska. I traveled in the care of a mountain boy, Jake Marpole, one of the hands on my father's old farm under the Blue Ridge, who was now going west to work for my grandfather. Jake's experience of the world was not much wider than mine. He had never been in a railway train until the morning, when we set out together to try our fortunes in a new world." Does that sound like anything, the style, the tone, the approach? Maybe the story within a story confused you and you were thinking of Conrad's Heart of Darkness or maybe something by H.G. Wells, those stories within a stories, where someone shows up with a manuscript or here's how I heard this story, that kind of thing. Here's why this tale is real or here's why this matters. Here's who I am. Here's how I came in possession of this story by this other person, which I'm passing along to you. I'm still a sucker for those, frankly. I know it's often viewed as a gimmick now. It was maybe overdone, but if you call it a technique instead of a gimmick, <laughs> it gives it a little more credibility. You could see how it works. The question is what effect will it have on a reader? Maybe if it feels like every single book has one of these and it feels like a crutch then yes, it just is throat clearing. It gets in the way. Readers can grow impatient. But if it helps set up your themes, gives puts a little angle on your story, gives it a some English, some spin, and above all, if it helps draw the reader in, then by all means, take advantage of that, writers. I think sometimes it helps writers write their story too. It's probably both underrated and overrated, but we're getting off track now. So, Remember, this is a world with Gertrude Stein and James Joyce in it in 1915. Here's an opener for Gertrude Stein. This is the gentle Lena from her book Three Lives, which came out in 1909. Here's how this book begins, or this story. Lena was patient, gentle, sweet, and German. She had been a servant for four years and had liked it very well. Lena had been brought from Germany to Bridgepoint by a cousin and had been in the same place there for four years. The place Lena had found very good. There was a pleasant, unexacting mistress and her children, and they all liked Lena very well. There was a cook who scolded Lena a great deal, but Lena's German patience held no suffering, and the good, incessant woman really only scolded so for Lena's good. You hear that opening? That's different, right? Different from Cather. We might fall into this point of view, the narrative voice, we might say. We might fall into that as we would fall into the voice of a storyteller like Huck Finn, where we're inhabiting a mindset that's different. We see that there's going to be something about this that isn't quite the same as how we ourselves would think. It's not the voice of a reasonable person telling us reasonable things in language like we might read in a newspaper or magazine. A smart, intelligent person who's not trying to impress us with diction or artistic choices or who doesn't have their own limited worldview or their own very idiosyncratic diction and worldview, but someone who's trying to set us up for themes and emotional resonance. A plain style trying to be almost invisible. That's a style too. It's less visible, but it's a style. You work hard to get that style. It's not just the default style. Willa Cather had to work hard to get it. So here's a portrait of the artist as a young man. This came out just two years before *My Antonia. Here's James Joyce begins, once upon a time, and a very good time it was, there was a moo cow coming down along the road, and this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Tuku. His father told him that story. His father looked at him through a glass. He had a hairy face. He was Baby Taku. The moo cow came down the road where Betty Byrne lived. She sold lemon plait. Oh, the wild rose blossoms. Oh, the little green place. He sang that song. That was his song. Oh, the green wolf of botheth. When you wet the bed, first it is warm, then it gets cold. His mother put on the oil sheet. That had the queer smell. His mother had a nicer smell than his father. She played on the piano the sailor's hornpipe for him to dance. Again, we might fall into the... Oh, we see what's happening here. The artist, the protagonist here is a child at this point in our story. We're beginning at the beginning. The narration is a child's point of view and the language is reflecting that. And we are invited to step right into that world. I get it. I see. Now show me what you want to show me, great artist. That's not the same as an adult who arrives, knocks on the door, asks to come in shakes the snow off his boots, sits down in front of the fire, and starts telling you about something that happened in his past and that he's still trying to comprehend. A guy who shows up with a legal portfolio bulging with pages that he just had to write. You met him on a train. This is my Antonia, of course. You met him on a train. He talked about my Antonia, his Antonia. Why haven't you written about it? Let's write about her and then he shows up here you go here are the pages i had to write i didn't even think about it i just wrote them down probably no structure grown-ups telling stories about other grown-ups or about their childhood trying to make sense of who they are now and how they got to be who they are but not through the prism of the author's art or literature, the artifice here is that there is seemingly little or no artifice. This is news. It's journalism. It's a story from a friend. Until the author hopes we're caught up and swept away. Sneaks up on us this way. We're not on our guard from the beginning saying, I see, I have to suspend some disbelief. We're saying, oh, okay, I get it. This is a story. I know that it's fiction because I bought it on the fiction rack at the store. But the narrator is talking to me just like this could be nonfiction. And yet, I'm sure we will get to some point. So, some point where there's some kind of emotional journey, some kind of ride that we're going to take. So our admirer of Willa Cather... And this book in particular, if you haven't guessed yet, is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Here he is in The Great Gatsby. This is how The Great Gatsby begins, which he started writing five or so years after he read My Antonia. He says, In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone... He told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. You hear that? Do you hear, <laughs> Do you hear how much closer, that is, to Willa Cather than it would be to Gertrude Stein or James Joyce. This is a person who's going to tell us a story. This is an adult talking to us as another adult in a way that's supposed to be kind of sneaky, right? Now, Fitzgerald is tacking toward Cather here. He read a lot. He admired a lot. He was immersed in Henry James and James Joyce and Gertrude Stein like his contemporaries, but he's moving toward Cather. And then because he's Fitzgerald, he adds a bit of Keats. He's Cather plus. Cather plus the occasional beautiful phrase that's almost there for its own sake, a bit of poetry sprinkled into the prosaic. A bit of magic dust. That's special to Fitzgerald. In a small way, I was an original, he said. I think that's what he means when he says that. That's how I take it anyway. A small way, I was an original. I was Cather plus magic. Fitzgerald also said, I haven't topped my Antonia. He said that about the great Gatsby. He said, I admit that in comparison to my Antonia and a lost lady, another book by Cather, I admit that in comparison to those two books, Gatsby is a failure. (laughs) they were admirers, admirers. uh... (laughs) They admired one another, those two. Fitzgerald actually thought that he had plagiarized Cather inadvertently, or he didn't actually, he didn't think that he plagiarized her. He thought there was an incident that she might confuse as plagiarism. It was after he wrote the The Great Gatsby and he realized that there was a similarity in one of the passages, and he wrote Cather a letter to apologize and explain, and he included his own manuscript, the pages of it, which was written before her book was published, to try to show her that he had come up with this passage himself. Then he wrote, As one of your greatest admirers, I want to write to explain an instance of apparent plagiarism. And looking at it now, to be honest, although Fitzgerald was being apologetic, kind of generously so, I'm not sure you would say it was plagiarism. It's not word for word or anything. And in fact, Cather said that she had read his book and hadn't even thought of her own. (laughs) Here's the similarity for you to listen to. This is from Cather's A Lost Lady. Quote, her eyes, when they laughed for a moment into one's own, seemed to promise a wild delight that he has not found in life. I know where it is, they seemed to say. I could show you. And then in The Great Gatsby, we hear this about Daisy Buchanan. Quote, there was an excitement in her voice that men who had cared for her found difficult to forget, a singing compulsion, a whispered, Listen a promise that she had done gay, exciting things just a while since, and that there were gay, exciting things hovering in the next hour. End quote. Close. It's got some affinities there. But after Fitzgerald wrote his letter apologizing, he got one in return from Willa Cather, who wrote, My dear Mr. Fitzgerald, I had read and hugely enjoyed your book before I got your letter and I honestly had not thought of A Lost Lady when I read that passage to which you now call my attention. So many people have tried to say that same thing before either you or I tried it and nobody has said it yet. I suppose everybody who has ever been swept away by personal charm tries in some way to express his wonder that the effect is so much greater than the cause. And in the end, we all fall back upon an old device and write about the effect, and not the lovely creature who produced it. After all, the only thing one can tell about beauty is just how hard one was hit by it. Isn't that so? Very cordially yours, Willa Cather. Hmm. It's a great letter. So, Let's get back to Catherine and my Antonia. In the end, we want this to be fiction and literature, and if it has a higher calling or higher purpose than journalism, and look, journalism has nothing to apologize for. A lot of people would say it's harder to stick to nonfiction, to get facts right, to get details right. You don't just get to make stuff up. There are factual details in nonfiction that are impressive and great for the soul, And in some ways, I'd rather read a book about the actual mysteries of outer space than watch Star Trek. They serve two different purposes. What we can't do is mix the two up. If Star Trek's point was to teach us about space, because they're teaching us about humanity, you know that, right? Or exploring it with us. But if their point was to teach us about the physics of space and the actual realities of space, well, they failed. It's not their point. That's not what they were trying to do. And a nonfiction book about the vastness of space or the amazing phenomenon of stars and galaxies and black holes and planets might not give us characters encountering societies from another planet. And different projects have different purposes. We turn to one. I like a good biography. I like a good muckraking work of journalism. I like when the nonfiction details are there and they get the facts right. I don't need everything to be fiction, but what does fiction do that nonfiction doesn't? That brings me back to Cather. She could write either one, and yet she chose to write fiction. She viewed that as a higher calling. If my my Antonia is going to be fiction, if it has a reason to be fiction, it's not just going to tell us about life as an Eastern European immigrant in Nebraska, because a nonfiction book could do that too can tell us about all about the plight and struggles. Can do that with nonfiction details. If it's going to tell us, my guess is, it's going to tell us something about the loneliness, something about the feeling of exile, the sense of struggle, the potential defeat, the triumph, the inner lives of those people who are out there in the wind and on the soil and in those little towns cropping up. What did they bring with them from their past? What emotional equipment did they have to help them endure their new surroundings? And how did they cope? How did they find room to connect with others, to love and be loved, to disappoint and redeem? That's what a book like My Antonia has to deliver if it's going to be more than a curiosity. It's not enough to say it was about Nebraska and nobody was writing about Nebraska. Maybe that's enough to get published in one's time, but it's not, it's not enough to become a book we will read 100 years later, unless we happen to be very specialized in a geographical area or historians of that place or something, some particular minute group of writers. So let's jump ahead. To get to the goods. Let's hear some of the deeper stuff. This goes close to the end. We won't spoil the end, but this goes close to the end. This is from book five, Cusack's Boys. We're almost at the end of the book. The narrator became, after the narrator met Antonia, Jim Burden, after he met Antonia, he became a sort of teacher for her. They had a childhood friendship. And here he resumes. 20 years later. Remember that Bohemia, when they say Bohemia, it's not an adjective for a lifestyle exactly. It's it, not in the sense that that came to be known. It refers to the region of Europe that we now call the Czech Republic, roughly. That's what he means by Bohemian and Bohemia. Okay. Book five, QX Boys. One. I told Antonia I would come back but life intervened, and it was 20 years before I kept my promise. I heard of her from time to time, that she married, very soon after I last saw her, a young Bohemian, a cousin of Anton Jelinek, that they were poor and had a large family. Once when I was abroad, I went into Bohemia, and from Prague I sent Antonia some photographs of her native village. Months afterward came a letter from her, telling me the names and ages of her many children, but little else. Signed, Your Old Friend, Antonia Cusack. When I met Tiny Soderball in Salt Lake, she told me that Antonia had not done very well, that her husband was not a man of much force, and she had had a hard life. Perhaps it was cowardice that kept me away so long. My business took me west several times every year, and it was always in the back of my mind that I would stop in Nebraska someday, and go to see Antonia. But I kept putting it off until the next trip. I did not want to find her aged and broken. I really dreaded it. In the course of twenty crowded years, one parts with many illusions. I did not wish to lose the early ones. Some memories are realities, and are better than anything that can ever happen to one again. I owe it to Lena Lingard that I went to see Antonia at last. I was in San Francisco two summers ago when both Lena and Tiny Soderball were in town. Tiny lives in a house of her own and Lena's shop is in an apartment house just around the corner. It interested me, after so many years, to see the two women together. Tiny audits Lena's accounts occasionally and invests her money for her. And Lena, apparently, takes care that Tiny doesn't grow too miserly. If there's anything I can't stand, she said to me in Tiny's presence, it's a shabby, rich woman. Tiny smiled grimly and assured me that Lena would never be either shabby or rich. And I don't want to be, the other agreed complacently. Lena gave me a cheerful account of Antonia and urged me to make her a visit. You really ought to go, Jim. It would be such a satisfaction to her. Never mind what Tiny says. There's nothing the matter with Cusack. You'd like him. He isn't a hustler, but a rough man would never have suited Tony. Tony has nice children. Ten or eleven of them by this time, I guess. I shouldn't care for a family of that size myself. But somehow, it's just right for Tony. She'd love to show them to you. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you can see where we're headed here. This is heartbreaking stuff, potentially. I've gone through this myself. You live in a place and you know it. You really know it. You know all the names of all the people in a way you never do elsewhere. And then you leave and years go by and you return and things have changed. You still know people, but they've changed. And so you're in this mode of expectation, sometimes pleasantly surprised Sometimes suffused with nostalgia and sometimes shocked and horrified. It can be pleasant to be home. It can also be a complete emotional bloodbath. Back to my Antonia. On my way east, I broke my journey at Hastings in Nebraska and set off with an open buggy and a fairly good livery team to find the Cusack farm. At a little past midday, I knew I must be nearing my destination. Set back on a swell of land at my right, I saw a wide farmhouse with a red barn and an ash grove and cattle yards in front that sloped down to the high road. I drew up my horses and was wondering whether I should drive in here when I heard low voices. Ahead of me, in a plum thicket beside the road, I saw two boys bending over a dead dog the little one not more than four or five was on his knees, his hands folded, and his close-clipped bare head drooping forward in deep dejection. The other stood beside him, a hand on his shoulder, and was comforting him in a language I had not heard for a long while. When I stopped my horses opposite them, the older boy took his brother by the hand and came toward me. He too looked grave. This was evidently a sad afternoon for them. Are you Mrs. Cusack's boys? I asked. The younger one did not look up. He was submerged in his own feelings, but his brother met me with intelligent gray eyes. Yes, sir. Does she live up there on the hill? I'm going to see her. Get in and ride up with me. He glanced at his reluctant little brother. I guess we'd better walk, but we'll open the gate for you. I drove along the side road and the followed slowly behind. When I pulled up at the windmill, another boy, barefooted and curly-headed, ran out of the barn to tie my team for me. He was a handsome one, this chap, fair-skinned and freckled, with red cheeks and a ruddy pelt as thick as a lamb's wool, growing down on his neck in little tufts. He tied my team with two flourishes of his hands and nodded when I asked him if his mother was at home. As he glanced at me, His face dimpled with a seizure of irrelevant merriment, and he shot up the windmill tower with a lightness that struck me as disdainful. I knew he was peering down at me as I walked toward the house. Ducks and geese ran quacking across my path. White cats were sunning themselves among yellow pumpkins on the porch steps. I looked through the wire screen into a big, light kitchen with a white floor. I saw a long table rows of wooden chairs against the wall, and a shining range in one corner. Two girls were washing dishes at the sink, laughing and chattering, and a little one, in a short pinafore, sat on a stool playing with a rag baby. When I asked for their mother, one of the girls dropped her towel, ran across the floor with noiseless bare feet, and disappeared. The older one, who wore shoes and stockings, came to the door to admit me. She was a buxom girl with dark hair and eyes, calm and self-possessed. Won't you come in? Mother will be here in a minute. Before I could sit down in the chair she offered me, the miracle happened. One of those quiet moments that clutch the heart and take more courage than the noisy, excited passages in life. Antonia came in and stood before me. A stalwart, brown woman, flat-chested, her curly brown hair a little grizzled. It was a shock, of course. It always is, to meet people after long years, especially if they have lived as much and as hard as this woman had. We stood looking at each other. The eyes that peered anxiously at me were simply Antonia's eyes. I had seen no others like them since I looked into them last, though I had looked at so many thousands of human faces— As I confronted her, the changes grew less apparent to me, her identity stronger. She was there, in the full vigor of her personality, battered but not diminished, looking at me, speaking to me in the husky, breathy voice I remembered so well. My husband's not at home, sir. Can I do anything? Don't you remember me, Antonia? Have I changed so much? She frowned into the slanting sunlight that made her brown hair look redder than it was. Suddenly her eyes widened. Her whole face seemed to grow broader. She caught her breath and put out two hard-worked hands. Why, it's Jim. Anna, Yolka, it's Jim Burden. She had no sooner caught my hands than she looked alarmed. What's happened? Is anybody dead? I patted her arm. No. No. I didn't come to a funeral this time. I got off the train at Hastings and drove down to see you and your family. I won't spoil it any further. This isn't the height of the book. It's ascending the peak, but it's not there yet. I think I won't do that for you. I I think it probably has to be earned anyway as a reader. I could parachute in at the top or fly up there in a helicopter. But that's not fair to you or the book. You need to climb along with the book. Hopefully you can hear it building when I read that passage. What will he find when he visits Antonia, the strong woman who stayed behind living her hard life like all those bohemians in the Middle West? There's a great story about Mayor Chermak of Chicago Speaking of Bohemians, that's the kind of world that these people came from. I didn't prepare that story for you today, but something worth checking out, the way Mayor Chermack sharpened his elbows and got in there with those Irish politicians, muscled his way to the front, endured a lot of prejudice, a lot of... Let me see if I I'll get the quote. Here it is. This is the 1931 mayor's race when... Shermack is challenging the incumbent, Big Bill Thompson. Chicago is a city on the rise at this point. Hundreds of thousands of people have flooded into it. It's gotten huge. It's the heyday of Al Capone as well. You've probably seen movies about Chicago of this period. Thriving metropolis and big power politics, big boss politics. Big Bill Thompson is the mayor. He's representing the Irish dominated power structure. And he said about Chermac, I won't take a backseat to that bohunk, Chermach, Chermac, or whatever his name is. Tony, Tony, where's your pushcart at? Can you picture a World's Fair mayor with a name like that? And Chermac said, he doesn't like my name. It's true. I didn't come over on the Mayflower. But I came over as soon as I could. The slur apparently backfired. Chermak won. It helped that Thompson was known for his corruption and buffoonery and his inability to clean up organized crime or his being in bed with organized crime, whatever was going on with Thompson. It was time for Chermac. And then he met. You know how he died? Chermak, he met with President-elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. He was shaking hands with him when an assassin popped up, Giuseppe Zangara. He was attempting to assassinate Roosevelt, and he missed, and he shot a bunch of other people, including Chermac, Shot him in the lung and died. Killed him. And Chermack was reputed to have looked at FDR and said, I'm glad it was me, not you. That's the line attributed to Chermack. This is America in the Depression. This is America that needs a savior, someone willing to take on big business someone willing to put people back to work, look out for the little man, look out for the immigrants, look out for the hungry, the poor, the tired, as Chermack had viewed himself as their champion. Now he saw the greater champion, the president, instead of a mayor, knew what FDR could do, and he said, I'm dying. I'm shot by your would-be assassin. I took the bullet that was intended to you, intended for you. And I'm glad. I'm glad it was me not you. Very powerful phrase. Unfortunately, the utterance Ah, uh, the Chicago Tribune quoted it. Never said there was a witness who heard it said. Scholars doubt that it was ever said. And in fact, although Zangara told the police that he hated rich and powerful people, but he didn't really have anything against Roosevelt personally. And in fact, if you hate rich and powerful people, here's the guy who's supposed to clean them up. A lot of people have floated rumors that this Chermak was actually the intended target, not Roosevelt, that this was payback. For Chermak's promise to clean up uh, Al Capone and and the the mafia, organized crime. That that's what had caused this. Anyway, we're off the track, aren't we? It's a good story, and I wanted to include it because it tells you something about Czech immigrants in this era. He's buried in the Bohemian National Cemetery. My Antonia is one of these people. This is who she comes from. This is her group. A lot of Czech immigrants in these states. Nebraska, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois. They came there to farm. Maybe there was something about the middle that they liked. Something that appealed to them. Not coastal. Something, uh some reason why they were there, other than just opportunity, or maybe it was just opportunity. Okay, here we go. Back to my Antonia and Willa Cather. You can hear where this is headed, right? You can hear it building. I didn't take you all the way up to the mountaintop, but I took you halfway up. What will he find when he visits Antonia, the strong woman? What will he learn about himself? What will he learn about the life he left behind? The road not taken. The road not taken always tells us something about the road taken, right? That's the way the road not taken works. That's what it's there for. Sometimes it makes us regret things or feel glad for things all over again. See, it's a wonderful life story. Okay. Will he find love there? When he sees my Antonia, she's surrounded by family. Will he find that she's lived a life full of love? Has she been surrounded by love or pain or both? Is there happiness? What does he draw from his encounter with my Antonia after all this time? How does her story affect him? What does he learn? What does he realize? What effect does it have on him? That's the story of My Antonia. Notice how he puts the My there. He gets that this is his version of her and the one that's important to him. My Antonia. It's a story of leaving Nebraska and coming home to Nebraska. And it's the story that Willa Cather, who herself left and came home, was born to write. <laughs> Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Willa Cather and my Antonia, Mr. Jim Burden, and to Lauren Marino, author of Bookish Broads, who put these stories in play for us this week. We'll be back with a look at Lolita and more on our list besides. And now I've got Sapphira and the Slave Girl on my mind and Toni Morrison. That will be a good one to explore. And Sarah Orne Jewett, too. So I'm sorry, Henry James and Lawrence Stern and who else? Percy Shelley, who keeps getting bumped here. We haven't done an episode on Shelley yet. Sorry, everyone. Oh, and Tom Jones. You see, Penny Dreadfuls. That's been on the list since the beginning. Fanny Bernie. There are so many milestones in the history of literature. Turgenev, how about that? I had an episode all ready to go. And about... Three years ago, I had an episode ready to go on the feud between Richard Wright and James Baldwin. Fascinating. And another one on ngoji Wachyongo. Did all the reading for that one. Another one on the endings of Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, The Different Arms. He rewrote that again and again. We were going to look at all the different endings for it. Ah, postponed. All of those shows bumped. Along with Flannery O'Connor, number two and The Merchant of Venice, and so many other shows as well. My apologies, people. We are doing as many as we can. Even more than we should, some might say. Ah, well. We're trying. We do two episodes a week during this quarantine anyway. Trying to put out some content, but maybe we'll go back to one a week soon, or something in the middle. In the meantime, we beat on votes against the current... Born back ceaselessly into the past and into books, those little floating life preservers. We are teamed up with Lithub Radio and www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.